Lust is the expression of a being projected beyond itself. It is the painful joy of wounded flesh, the joyous pain of a flowering. And whatever secrets unite these beings, it is a union of flesh. It is the sensory and the sensual synthesis that lead to the greatest liberation of spirit. It is the communion of a particle of humanity with all the sensuality of the earth. It is the panic shudder of a particle of the earth. Lust is the quest of the flesh for the unknown. Just as cerebration is the spirit's quest for the unknown. Lust is the act of creating. It is creation. Lust is the eternal battle. Never won. After the fleeting triumph. Even during the ephemeral triumph itself. Reawakening dissatisfaction spurs a human being. Driven by an orgiastic will to expand and surpass himself. That was a selection from the Futurist Manifesto of Lust by Valentine de Saint-Point. Welcome to The Manifest Image, the podcast about the literary form of the manifesto, the artists who wrote them, and the art they made, from the perspective of artists living at the time. I'm Ariel de la Garza. And I'm Thomas Greengrass. Oh, thank you, Thomas. That was a spirited reading, as always. <laughs> well, we do try to move back and forth. Yeah. So, recap? Yeah, recap. So, this is... Uh, last week, obviously, we did uh, the Futurist Manifesto of Women by Valentin de Saint-Point. And in that, we saw various ideas about femininity and masculinity, additions to uh, the Futurist project. Um, she was uh, trying to push forward this uh, idea, giving Futurism additional conceptual tools and resources. And... Through these concepts of femininity and masculinity, she diagnosed the individual as well as presented historical, anthropological and psychological tools. Um, so she could say that various periods of history struggled. There were various uh, uh, imperfections because either masculinity or femininity were dominant. And in a semi-Aristotelian vein, she says that you have to have this mix of both. You have to have this golden this golden mean. Those mm-hmm. aren't her words, but that's what we can take it as. Almost. Almost. Almost her words. She yeah. says something almost like that in this one as well. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, but yeah, femininity and masculinity were the key tools that she introduced last time. And she used them both for the individual, saying that each of us is a combination of feminine and masculine traits. And she uses these technically. They, mm-hmm. they, you, they are semi-intuitive, but she doesn't go all the way. Masculinity is very brute and animalistic, whereas femininity is unclear. It's not quite clear what she means, but sometimes she uses some sort of idea of order, sometimes this idea of just sort of... Uh, There's something for... to do with either caregiving or the social role of a woman. Well, no, the but it's time, also to it's some also, degree, right? I think it's also something to do with just the idea of safety as well. Mm. Uh, just there, it's playing it safe, and mm-hmm. that, and I think that that's what because you couldn't have it defined as the role of a woman because then femininity would just be defined as that which is the role of a woman. But she's saying that the problem with the role of a woman is that it is too feminine. You'd end up right at exactly. Certain point yeah. she's not quite there. Yeah. Um, and she does uncouple both masculinity and femininity from sex, I guess, what we would understand as sex now. Yeah, to some extent, yeah. absolutely, yeah. And so, um, 
it's important to keep these things in mind because those are her dominant contributions to uh, the various intellectual resources that futurism has. In this one, she'll push it even further. She argued in the last one that actually sex is important and that lust can be a great force, but this is the manifesto where she takes it as her centerpiece and pushes it forward. And normally I would do a summary. And you're not going to do a summary? I was going to ask, Thomas, a summary. I will do a mini summary of a different kind. It won't be as pithy this time. Mm. Um, instead, first of all, just before I do it, I will ask you, how did you feel about it? Ooh, I loved it. Mm. I absolutely loved it. It's probably my favorite since the first one. Yeah, I agree. Um, But it wasn't initially, though. You took, like, the first time you read it, it was good, but I think it's one of those no, where I mean, you it reread was, it. It was brilliant. It was, it was brilliant, but, but on, on rereading it was, it was better. It, it's very exciting, and it, it's, it's, very, it's very tight. Like, as a text, it's very mm. to the point um, and very excitingly written. And we'll be, operating, written. We'll be operating from at least two translations, J.C. Yes, exactly. Higgett... And mine, which is Lawrence Rainey. Yeah. Um, from the anthology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. From the, the Futurism and Anthology, the, the large uh, uh, selection. Mm-hmm. But we'll also do possibly a little bit of personal translation. I know. Personal nitpicking is what yeah. it was. But important nitpicking. Um, so this one, we thought we could find it in French, but the original was in Italian. Mm. Um, since I guess this was her contribution to the Futurist movement. Then it was it was it was done directly in the Italian, so it's um, there are a few kind of natural ambiguities to the language, which each translator makes their own um, version of, right? Like one of which was mind and spirit, mind for example, spirit, yeah. which in Italian is kind of is the same word, you know, spirit is spirito, something like this, and then mind is mente. Um, so in the Higgins, same as Spanish, same as English, mm. but people will tend to translate spirit as mind and they do, I, I, yeah. I guess based on how analytic you're feeling that day no yeah Higgit opts for um, spirit mm-hmm. and uh, Rainey opts for mind um, and that doesn't sound so impressive there but one of the, one of the things I think that is quite important uh, what I read at the beginning mm-hmm. uh, w- uh, which was uh, lust is the quest of the flesh for the unknown, just as cerebration is the spirit's quest for the unknown. Now, cerebration there is an odd word in English. You don't hear it come across it, but you know you can probably tell that it's the same root as cerebral. Although you know Thomas cerebrates all the time. Yeah. What a <laughs> lovely. That's a great pun. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, but um, in the rainy, it's rendered as something like. Uh, the uh, just as thoughts are the mind's uh, search for the unknown. Mm-hmm. Now we also had a problem with that word "search," uh, yeah. in, which in the uh, Higgit is quest, but in the Rainy is search. And when you looked at it, you rendered it as research. I think the direct translation is research. Mm. Um, it's the Italian word for research, which I, I don't want to. Com- I don't want to completely butcher, but it's a bit like. Like you know the 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 famous Proust title, 
um, in search, in of, search lost of lost time, you, you, you can do it search or in research of lost time doesn't seem to work. But so it's, it's, it's that type of word mm. that is a mixture between quest. And so quest is a guided search. Whereas a search, I guess, is more of a search. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a bit, it's a bit freer a and softer. Having a specific direct object, a, yeah. a specific end goal versus more of a general open-ended goal. Like o- you open-ended, can, yeah. You can research, kind of generally start looking about and aimlessly, mm-hmm. but then sometimes you have a very specific thing in mind. And yeah, that's. I think that that does lead to, if you get down into the nitty-gritty, something of a, a different interpretation. Because at that moment, she introduces something more. And this is, the, this is what I'm going to do. This is where I'm going to get to my version of the summary for this week. She ends up, uh, Sampoin, ends up introducing some brand new ideas and touches on all sorts of things. The two, uh, 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 the two main mm-hmm. ideas. The unknown, which she doesn't develop, but she just mentions it. And it's so important. And it's in bold. It's rendered in bold in the actual Italian. So it, it clearly is important to her. But then she also makes this great distinction between the, the spirit and flesh, mm. or the uh, mind and the body. Uh, you know... Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. No. Well, because if you're not going to do a pithy summary, I think I have to do a pithy summary. Oh, okay. Oh, please do. Well, it starts pretty simply. Um, she first defines lust. Mm. What is lust? Lust is a force. Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No, sorry. <laughs> Go on. Uh, uh. What is lust? Baby, don't hurt nah, me. I knew you were doing it again. <laughs> yeah. um, she tells you what lust is. Then she asks, you know, then she answers what we must do with it. Like, what should we do? How should we change? And then she comes back. To what lust is affirming it so that's what it is mm. that's what that's that's the structure of the manifesto yeah uh, so we said already the unknown and the spirit and the body which is something new this hasn't been covered by the futures before but then we also have uh, touched upon here what you might think of as certain Freudian concepts mm-hmm. You also have a little bit of a seeming reference to Nietzsche, as well as a throwaway line to evolutionary theory later on. She also uh, has a throwaway line where she touches upon what she thinks artistic creation consists in. Um, So you have all these little nuggets that are sort of thrown in there. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then it becomes so... She paints this very violent and bloody picture early on regarding uh, this very memorable bit, which is difficult to stomach. Uh, regarding war and violence mm-hmm. and rape after war, uh, and she does this when she's portraying lust, and in a and she portrays this rape in a in a good light, um, and it's a very strange thing we mentioned last week. Well, in a good light, or not to defend this, but in a, I guess in a natural light, uh, yeah, rather than a good one necessarily. This is what I mean. Of in fact, in fact, her her. Most of what she does is to try to remove the moral from lust, remove the evaluative from the way we tend to consider lust. So that, I think that's why she keeps saying lust is a force. So I'm not so sure about all of this. I do agree. I, um, yeah. but, but I mean, 
Of course, you can you can still you know condemn that. That's obviously a terrible thing. But that's her. No, she yeah. she's doing a psychological, uh, uh, descriptive uh, interpretation. She's, yeah. If she's presenting presenting a descriptive worldview, just saying, I'm not saying how the world ought to be, but mm-hmm. this is how it is. Sure. Yeah. Um, and you could also think maybe she's doing something that's prescriptive here. I mean, she she, she is expressly afterwards. Exactly. Right? That's part two. But then I also think that there is a norm. There are normative concepts that she uses here, and I'm she wasn't a philosopher, so maybe she's not going to be looking to go through this with a fine tooth comb. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that you have to be very careful here. But she she paints this very violent and bloody image, mm-hmm. and she sort of. If she doesn't relish it, through her writing, it seems like she does because it's so richly portrayed. It's it's sure. very visceral. Um, but we mentioned last week that she herself turns her back on the futurist almost it's the mm-hmm. year after the year after. So she has a very quick turnaround where she eventually ends up saying she doesn't actually say this, but she might as well have said something like. Uh, make love not war or you know uh, be erotic not violent or something like that because she, she did she didn't but she might as well have done uh, mm. because that's what she really ends up going into and she has massive problems with violence afterwards so I do wonder whether she got a little bit frightened by her own violent and bloody image that's presented here maybe but maybe it's not totally uh, nihilistic or annihilationist she has this additional uh, uh, complication where she presents this very uh, vital cycle mm-hmm. and I mean vital in this sense of alive it is a, it is a cycle of life and birth and death the reason I had that little addition on the end uh, at the end where even you know the, the spirit in this orgiastic moment is then sort of getting ready to sort of replenish and do it all again but she also does suggest an end in that idea of the quest for the unknown. Mm-hmm. And she also says that... And that the unknown can be found? She doesn't say that the unknown uh. can be found. And this is why there's a problem about the search. If, if, it's, if there is a name of the unknown, where right. actually there is a kind of an end point that you could get to, or whether it is just a general kind of a drop... Perhaps the unknown is itself a drive mm. thing. Mm. I don't know, but it's something brand new to the futurists. Mm. That we haven't seen before, at least. It is. It is. Maybe it's helpful to say a little bit about who Sampoin was. In in broad sketches only, because her, her life was quite tumultuous. She went back and forth through many different phases. And as, as you well said, she ends up repudiating futurism and moving on to different things. In fact, her, her foray into futurism might... Is perhaps more that futurism served her own artistic um, ambitions rather than the other way around. The, than she becoming a sort of tried and true uh, Marinettian futurist, right? Mm. It was more her artistic practice was very, very much to do with um, energy, yeah, you know? energy and force and movement and speed and some amount of subversion. Um, so obviously the futurists completely serve all of those things, no? Yeah, um, very much. I so probably so. you can see that. And then she winds up going to Egypt and she has some role to play in kind of early anti-colonialism. Um, 
So yeah, very interesting person. No? Mm. She was in Paris in important salons. And is there something yeah. more? Because I sense that there's something else that you want. No, that's that's main, oh, okay. mainly it. Yeah. But no, and so. But I mean, just to to consider her as not merely a futurist. Yeah. Is informative. I think this is also uh, not to detract from Sampoir, but something that perhaps we should also um, mention in relation to the others that we've mentioned so far. Most of them. They either die or they break off. It's difficult to... You you end up having to... kind of resolve this tension between a movement Mm -hmm. and a movement that is almost inherently fragmented because you've got these people who really have their own projects going on. We were just today discussing... um, uh, uh, You asked me about what... Uh, what artist does some of the futurists refuse to give up? And I, yeah. I was looking at this thing where Boccioni, Boccioni um, is still very indebted to Michelangelo and he accepts that. And But if you ask someone like Marinetti, he's so opposed to it. You know, we only got those handful of people from uh, Kill the Moonlight, right? Or, or no, a symbolist, uh, we abjure our symbolist masters, which was in our Kill the Moonlight episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the second one. But... Even then, it's very tense, and Marinetti seems, out of all of them, to be the one that, at least in terms of appearance, wants a total cut, a total um, uh, separation. Whereas some of the others seem a little bit more and, iffy and pensive. Yeah, maybe about that's it. why usually his were the best manifestos. He was also because the he poet, is the most, right? Yeah, but because he is the most radical, he is the most mm. clear eyed and provocative. Whereas the others, you can see them almost trying to wriggle out of some of the strictures that Marinetti sets, because who knows what you would have left, I guess, to work with if you fully did, you know, the I guess he was also the the leader, right? He's also a leader. The others, it's one thing to go along with other people's ideas. It's another thing to be in control of your own ideas and to be in control of your own destiny. It's something else again to be in control of yourself and have this idea of something that's beyond yourself mm-hmm. and to gear a movement. And I think this is something that we'll see through people like, we've already seen it with Marinetti, but I think we'll later on see it with people like Tristan Sara for Dadaism mm-hmm. and André Breton for Surrealism. Uh, whereas all these others, they seem to be happy to go along with it to some extent, but are also very much, they aren't really, they're not disciples they right. are people yeah. who have their own ideas and they will push it forward. Yeah, I hesitate to disagree. say yeah, I hesitate to say opportunist, but then again I don't think they're that it's cynical. Very, no. I don't think Sam Poir certainly isn't that cynical. No, I don't think. No, no. No, it's connected to her to her, her artistic practice yeah. very intensely. But no, uh, so perhaps we should dive in just for this beginning. We said that we really like this. Yeah. Um and we get uh this a statement of who are the intended recipients what's the point of this manifesto who is it written for and she says explicitly at the beginning a reply to those dishonest journalists who twist phrases to make the idea seem ridiculous to those women who only think what I have dared to say mm. to those for whom lust is still nothing but a sin to all those who in lust can only see vice just as in pride they see only vanity and this is the first time that she mentions uh, 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 pride. Mm-hmm. Because as much as I like this, it begins very shaky, 
I don't know if you felt this, but it begins with this analogy. Um, uh, Lust viewed without moral prejudices and as an essential element within life's dynamism as a force. Mm. It's not that bit. It's a bit after. Um, I know that I said at the beginning, but... Uh, Lust is not a mortal sin, no more than pride. Like pride, it yeah. is an activating virtue, a hearth that nourishes energies. That bit, right? Yeah, it's yeah. that bit. When she draws this analogy with with pride. Now, this seems very odd in terms of an argument, because normally your analogies, they rely on the strength that one thing people will accept, and the other one, you're trying to make them accept that by linking it to that, and they already accept the latter. Yeah, of course. So that's that's the relation to it. But people don't accept pride. <laughs> she's, she's sort of going, yeah, pride, lust is not any more than pride. Thomas, you have, to remember, you have to remember, this is, this is a speech given to Italians. For them, that made all the difference. <laughs> but it's, in yeah. an odd way, I mean, this is an extreme point, but it, it tries... It, it gets it across. Um, this is my pithy bit. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like trying to say, oh, no, uh, murder's not any worse than torture is. <laughs> You're not going to buy it because you don't buy that torture is, you know, it isn't bad. You, yeah, 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 of a, course. It seems an odd start. It's a jarring, it's, a, it's definitely a jarring analogy. Don't you think, though? Uh, she doesn't linger on it. Um, she does then immediately jump in, as you said, in your version of the pithy, um, that lust is the expression of a being projected, which we said. Mm-hmm. Um, so she does then develop Yeah, I think so. I think so. But I, I didn't mind that. I didn't mind talking about pride because it, it, it tells you so much about her, what, what she wants to tell you and about what... what I guess her kilter, <laughs> right? It does, but this is the form of the manifesto, I think, because um, normally, as I was saying, that these analogies, they kind of work on you where yeah, you're going to accept it. But, but then again, What's she's she not trying, trying to do here, then? Well, she's Overwhelm not, you? I think so. Yeah, no, this I is... Think, a, I yeah. think so, because she's not trying to reasonably argue, argue you into saying, oh, yes, lust, I must detach I this gonna, from its evaluative content. Merely descriptive, yeah. I was going to do hyperfora there. Mm, where are you? Well, I give a question and then answer, yes, that's exactly what she's doing. I got you, Thomas. You leapt in before. Together, uh, we're hyperphoric. And with that, listeners, that's the end of no, 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 the no. podcast. <laughs> um, but... Uh, so it, it does have, I think, this, this interesting start that is a bit shaky. But as we said, mm-hmm. I think it's meant to overwhelm you. But I do wonder whether, because it's right at the beginning, it's going to do that. People might just stop reading. But I guess it's for a different audience. Remember, sure. who are we at the time? And also, you have to remember, this is recited to people. It's published, but it's also recited to people. Mm. Uh, namely, at the Salgavo. Ah. So, hold on, uh, could you read all of this out for me, please, Ariel, in your beautiful voice? Which part? Publishes a leaflet in Direzioni del Movimiento Futurista, Milan, 11th of January 1913. A reply to press comment on lectures given by the writer at the 1912 Futurist Exhibition in Brussels and Paris. Mm. End parenthesis. <laughs> And so, uh, yeah, that, which is what we said at the beginning, so those journalists who twist the words and all those people who... Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, what we said at the beginning, this idea of lust is the quest of the flesh for the unknown, just mm. as cerebration is the spirit's quest for the unknown. Lust is the act of creating. It is creation. 
that ties in with this idea that we get from Marinetti and others that we don't want to produce anything eternal. Mm-hmm. These are things that are worthless. It is in the whim, and the whim is pure creation. And here she's linking in with that. But this idea of the unknown, capital U. Yeah, what do you think she means? And the, But it's the end for both the mind, the spirit, and the body, mm. and the sensual. I think that this anticipates... Uh, people like Bataille and the Surrealists. I mean, lust, lust, is, <laughs> lust is desire. Pure, this like pure, I mean, she mm. says it, the force. Yeah. But it's like the, the pure essential thing that moves you to do things. And for her, it is an erotic thing. That desire, that fundamental move to do yeah. things. I think so. I th- um, and I think, but it's... I just want to really emphasize that, how much this does. She's not the first person to, I mean, people who study these kinds of ideas will say that someone like Saad is actually the origin of something like this. But people like Bataille and the Surrealists and Artaud, they would push these ideas further. But this is early, this is 1913. Mm-hmm. And okay, Saad was before that, but... But there's also, I think, a touch of mysticism about it. There is a touch of mysticism about it, which the weird mind translation of spirit Mm. tries to obscure, I think. And she also mentions religion later on. Mm. So, um, the modern hero, the hero in any field, experiences the same desire and the same pleasure. The artist, that great universal medium, has the same need. And the exaltation of the initiates, of those religions still sufficiently new to contain a tempting element of the unknown, Mm. is no more than sensuality diverted spiritually towards a sacred female image. Wow. Yeah, no, so, uh, I mean... uh, she really does seem to touch on this idea that religion is touching on this thing. And, and that's why I link it with the mystics as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and people like Bataille would especially pick up on this and try to reinterpret um, uh, things like the sufferings of uh, the ecstatic sufferings of St. Teresa mm. in this kind of proto-erotic way. Uh, and he would say that the erotic is... Um, uh, uh, what does he say exactly? Hold on, it's something like life. It is ascent to life up. Ascent to life up until the point of death. I've got this wrong. Thomas is ascent now. Thomas is now looking in every corner of the room, yeah. trying to find his idea. Yeah, I'm trying to remember this off the top. It's something. Oh, goodness, I will find it another time. Mm-hmm. I will correct it for the <laughs> next one. I'm so sorry. Um, mm-hmm. But um, so I think that's a great. What, what I what I was going to say when I was yes. mentioning things about her life that I that I didn't. That I was trying to coax. Yeah, so like, is it, she's a dancer. Yeah, the ballet. But I, but I think that, well, the ballet, but also performance dancer, right? So she would mm. do these, like, performances, um, very, very dressed up in pearls and things like that, to... Uh, and I think if you see what she's saying here through that lens like the carnal search of into the unknown or about the unknown it makes a little more sense when you when you talk about dance i find to think of it not only as as a as a performative thing but as some kind of an exploration as some kind of a of a way of knowing 
in in like physical movement and physical desire something that's a lot more connected to the body rather than only connected to the intellect no i sympathize yeah i think there is very much something to that and what's interesting about that is that she she's so futurism is is obsessed with the machine man Mm. with this idea of a body becoming machine phrase the human hybrid yeah human hybrid the hybrid man was that what you called it uh, it was the alliterative, the hybrid human or the hu- human hybrid. Yes. It's always got, because they call it the machine man or the multiplied man. Mm-hmm. It's always got to be alliterative. Yeah, it's got to be alliterative, this. yeah. Um, Unless you want me to rhyme it again. Rhyme it. No, 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 no. Because what was it last week with the uh, walls and holes or something like that? Oh, yeah. That was a, <laughs> a lovely one. Sorry. <laughs> Rolls off the tongue. Yeah. But she's trying to... She she brings to this machine man the, the man part of it. I, what, what was that? What was that sentence? So she... <laughs> we're keeping that in, Aaron. We are. We're keeping this one. So she's identifying lust as the driving essential force from which all our creative and otherwise, I mean, energies come, mm. right? And that, But that's a bodily thing. Right? It's not a weird disembodied energy like it is for the futurists. She's sort of linking that straight to you, to a body, to flesh. And that's, that's, that's interesting. That's interesting. She's doing this, this sort of bridging that, that makes their very mechanical practice kind of squishy and human. Yeah. I, I, no, I think so. I think that that's absolutely right, that there is this touch of um, uh, uh, bringing it closer. It's not entirely foreign to the earlier futurist manifestos, mm-hmm. because anger and violence, these uh, and this love of war... Are emotions. Kind of, yeah, and these are kind of bodily urges and brutality. Uh, kind of, but they're not bodily. They don't feel bodily. You don't feel anger in your hands. I think they, they, in some ways, they think that they do. I don't know. I don't know about that. You know, like the idea of the red mist descending and that all they can feel is just this anger and violence and that that's what descends upon Mm. them. But that this is a very different output and because Mm -hmm. the earlier uh, futurists were so against it, Marinetti in particular. So, uh, but I do agree that, uh, yeah. that there is, although they do mention it, a lot of the time they seem very general about it, but she really does situate it. But I love how she just... Uh, sure, I mean, she does... She does additional she, she, concepts. She never mentions machines. No. She never no. mentions machines in either of her, of her manifestos. And in fact, later futurists will actually end up going more towards the idea that human beings are nothing but machines. Yeah. Um... Is plastic and move towards plastic creations. So at the moment she is in this. I don't know if she was familiar with it, but she seems semi indebted to Cartesian distinctions between the spiritual and the physical, mm. between the mind and the body. That's, I mean, as a I'm sure you know, Heidegger bit, has a problem know. with that. That that's where he thinks that philosophy went wrong. Mm. That he should they should have never done that. Um. But uh, I don't think we can put this off any longer. This is the in the early section because it's kind of separated into two parts. There's this one uh, after the uh, uh, introduction of who this is for, mm. the clarification. 
we then get this first big paragraph and then the rest of it is a sort of a second great big section with individual uh, paragraphs but um, in the first one we get this idea of the rape um, we possess body and spirit to curb one and develop the other shows weakness and is wrong a strong man must realize his full carnal and spiritual potentiality the satisfaction of their lust is the conqueror's due after a battle in which men have died, it is normal for the victors, proven in war, to turn to rape in the conquered land, so that life may be recreated. Now, mm-hmm. that's going to be difficult to swallow. And it's... As I said, I, I think that she paints a very violent and bloody image, and she herself, I think, gets frightened by it later on, hence she turns away from it. mm uh, but there we also have the carnal and spiritual in the Higit. Um, Translation. Yeah. But what is interesting is, I, we, I said this earlier, that it's not egotistical. Mm. It's not just about the satisfaction of, her, uh, of the desires of the one. She goes on to develop this later on. She gives these two qualifications of what desire and lust really are um, and how they should play out. Mm-hmm. But she has it's not egotistical it's about that this is part of a cycle she has here that this is the idea that the rape is to recreate life so it's very violent very bloody and horrible to our eyes and yet at the time she's thinking of it that there is this it is all just this um, explosion of energy and that that is what it's depicting and it's all this spiritual and uh, physical uh, Exploration and um, what am I looking for? Not output. What, what are you looking for? Kind of for? like an exhaust. Not an exhaust. What am I looking for? It's an execution. It's not that either. Thomas is moving his hand back and forth. Yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm as if to beckon. Yeah. As if beckoning forth the words that won't come. Where are the fairies that aid me? Come to me now. They've <laughs> all abandoned. Yeah, so I think... But it's not annihilation. She is not a, a, a pure nihilist. It's not just an endpoint of destruction and that. In fact, she then describes no, what she thinks by annihilation with sentimentality. Mm-hmm. She thinks that sentimentality and nostalgia and rhetoric... Yeah, she doesn't, she doesn't... I mean, I guess she might glorify it, although she does try... Um, part of her project is to uncouple moralism from lust. Moralism from that that pure desire. I agree, yeah. Um, and perhaps this is a particularly provocative way to, to do that, to talk about um, something like rape in neutral terms, which he does. She doesn't condemn it at all. Um, She's glorifying it, if anything. Yeah. She is. In the terms of this violence, it's the conqueror's duty. Yeah, it is. It, but this is the point that human beings' lives aren't their own. It's all for this cycle. It's a very bloody kind of energy that's being expended here. Yeah, yeah, but it is. It is. It, it's a cycle. It, it goes on. True, but she says. She says. Um, for conquerors, lust is a tribute that is owed to them after a battle in which some men have died. It's normal for the victors, having been selected through war, to turn to you know, raping the conquered land. Da 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 da. Yeah, I guess she does see it as sort of this brutal cycle of yeah. life it that is. creates and destroys itself. And yet she um, does have this kind of, alludes to these ideas of the end point, yeah. which is that 
actually all of these things they point to the unknown mm. and this is where I kind of think that it really does hearken to people like Bataille and the series sure. where they've got this idea that all these things they do look to this idea of beyondness this stretching beyond and she doesn't just drop it there but I think we should carry on and move a little bit further um, along now um, <clears throat> so then she She then goes on to say that that same force is the one that impels great businessmen today who direct finance, press, and international trade um, to increase their wealth and so on. So it's like still... I made a joke about this today, this, didn't I? Did, you did? About the businessmen. Oh, they're miserable. No, the businessmen on cocaine. Oh, yeah. That they take all this cocaine to fill in the, the vacuum that is their personality. <laughs> Because all they do is talk about business. <laughs> And so it has the saving grace that whenever they do talk about this, they do it quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you. So these men, burdened with their task and yet strong, find time for lust, the force that drives their actions and the reactions of others, repercussions affecting multitudes and worlds. So I guess that's her trying to reconnect that same vital force with the very exciting things that happen in boardrooms and spreadsheets today and she says it's you know it's this idea of lust it is the region of the soldier of the artist of the everyday person it's of the business person it's of, of everyone of, of it's everyone everywhere. of everyone but of, of of anyone that creates but she thinks that, that uh, makes and amasses power but and, she says you know, that lust itself is a creation it is a creative mm, force rather. creative force yeah. um she does end up saying This is where she starts... Uh, she doesn't mention Freud directly, and I don't know if she read Freud, but those ideas were in the zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. And she touches... She seems to touch upon it, and I think you can... That, 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 lust, that lust is kind of a drive? Is that what you mean? Uh, not only that it's a drive, but she also then ends up looking at uh, how why it's suppressed. Because she's not just... Because people will then go, well, hold on, why do people think of it as a vice then? Mm -hmm. And she does this twofold thing, which I think is magnificent. Uh, first of all, she says that um, uh, Christi uh, Christian morality alone, following on from pagan morality, was fatally drawn mm -hmm. to consider lust as a weakness. So she dries, uh, 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 um, produces this history of how it became a vice. Mm. But she's not content with that, because that only pushes this problem back a step. Like, okay, fine, it's historical. Why did that happen there? And she goes on, to talk about it later, um, where she says, um, she says, one moment. We must strip lust of all the sentimental veils that disfigure it. These veils were thrown over it out of mere cowardice because smug sentimentality is so satisfying. Sentimentality is comfortable and therefore demeaning. Now, I'd like to just shelve the therefore demeaning part because I think that that could cause some problems here. But certainly the idea that sentimentality is comfortable, that this is the problem, that all of this idea of why, do, why was this historic event of, of, of making this uh, lust a vice? Why did it occur? Well, it introduced sentimentality mm. instead. And uh, she goes into this uh, point later on here. Um, where she says that there's, there's all this rhetoric um, around it. There are artificial jealousies, mesmerizing complications of sentimentality that inebriate and deceive the, the rhetoric of parting and eternal fidelities, literary nostalgia, all the histories yeah. of love. 
that sentimentalism is comfortable and it diminishes us. Exactly. So mm -hmm. uh, this, I think, is a, a, a really great <coughs> little bit of uh, theoretical development there because she, because people, critics would just go, well, hold on, how did it come about? She then introduces, well, actually, there's a history thing and she blames it in part because of Christianity and that she says is based on pagan thing. Mm -hmm. And then they go, well, hold on, whoa, whoa, whoa. but that only pushes the problem back a step. It's because there's something that's comfortable about it. Yeah. There's something that is just easy. But she then says that sentiment is the annihilating force. All of these things are the annihilating sure, that force. If, if lust is the thing that it impels us forward, I'm searching for... See? Yeah, that if, if lust is, is uh, an, the activating virtue, the heart that nurses energies then sentimentality deadens it, deadens that, right? Mm. By kind of letting one get lost in this comfortable pedal counting or something. But mm. I, I don't know about you, but I find that this is some serious theory that we've been yeah. introduced to in these manifestos. Finally, finally. Um, and it, it also gives some, some so bite, much. and it, it finally gives some bite, I think, to the futurist dislike for something like the moon yeah she uh, although right? you haven't mentioned it she mentions problem with the moonlight with the, the, the moon, moonlight duets I think she mentioned yeah. I mean, in my translation it comes out yeah. as that but I think in yours it's a bit different um, and the Higgit yeah versus the uh, uh, rainy but but yeah she finally gives some here it is actually we must destroy the fatal rags and tatters of romanticism counting daisy petals moonlight duets a false and hypocritical sense of shame let people who have been drawn together by physical attraction dare to express their desires, the allure of their bodies, their presentiments of joy or disappointment at the prospect of fleshly union, instead of talking solely about the delicacy of their hearts. So she says, cut all that fuzzy bullshit, get down to it. <laughs> kind of. But, okay, no, I, I don't want to jump ahead. But th I think this can finally I, uh, gives some bite to, yeah. to, to the futurist... Uh, hatred of sentimentality and the moon and, and, and all that. Well, even Ezra Pound later before, on would send, uh, yeah. pseudonymously, mm -hmm. but Ezra Pound would actually write a review of this for The Egoist and specifically mention this idea that it is this tirade against Claire de Lune, mm -hmm. uh, the moonlight, and exalts it for it. Yeah, exactly. It's, so it's more than merely, oh, the moon is old. Old people talk about it. It, it, try to, it tries to give it a bit more, more bite. Well, this is a problem that we faced uh, uh, weeks ago, mm. uh, episodes ago. I asked, what is so wrong, logically, about being old? Yeah. What is to stop one? In some of our earlier episodes, you, listeners might remember that we, uh, we were going on about, well, what's to stop you from being, say, 40 or 60 or 80 mm -hmm. and still with this intense driving passion? Surely you could be as futurist. They don't seem to have an answer, but now here, uh, Sampoint is potentially alluding to an answer. It still doesn't sure. tie in with biological age, but there is this idea that there is something that's comfortable about it. And I think that with that, it gives you additional resources to like make the, sense. The of sentimentality this. that comes with age. Yeah. Yeah. And just the, and that that's comfortable, and that is the same the, as the, annihilation. Exactly. Sort of the unhealth of not giving in to those desires. In, in, in a sort of full way. And but... Sorry. 
I was this going to say that yeah. this is where I think you... We've alluded to it in the past, but we haven't really made a big deal of it. I think this is the first time that it's really appropriate to bring out the idea that it seems to be pointing in a certain interpreta- to a certain interpretation of Nietzsche and mm. be uh, indebted to those kind of uh, Nietzschean ideas. Yes, definitely. The idea of the constant overcoming. and uh, If you are comfortable, if you are complacent, if you are stuck... It's not okay. You have to always be moving forward. That's the energy. You have a will to power as well here. Sorry, I just wanted to... No, that's very good. And I wanted to add that as, as this continues, though, he isn't merely saying, you know, get lost completely in your lustful fantasies and desires and everyone tear your clothes off of you. If, if you see one another on the train and you think, oh, yes, then do it. That's not her point at all. No. (laughs) (laughs) We should desire a body as consciously as we desire anything else. Instead of surrendering ourselves or conquering others, love at first sight, a moment of passionate weakness, or a slip of the guard, with the inevitable disappointments which come with unpredictable tomorrows, we should choose wisely. Guided by will and intuition, we should evaluate our feelings and desires and avoid bringing things to a head or coupling unless we know we can complement and enhance each other. See, this is the thing that I alluded to earlier about the qualifications that she offers. Mm-hmm. That's such an important bit. So here, I think, is where she brings back the uh, Aristotelian uh, things that we, we sort of mentioned previously um, about the, the, the last one. Yeah, uh, about the idea that there has to be some sort of proper interaction What's fascinating is in, uh, we mentioned this word synthesis earlier. Mm-hmm. Synthesis is not the same as equilibrium. Mm. Equilibrium is just this kind of balancing point. It's this point of stability. Sure. A synthesis is where these two ideas actually come together to transform into this new single entity. And this is a synthesis, isn't it? It looks like it. And, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, it's so important, this bit, I think, because this is what makes... Her so profound, I think. Yeah, and in fact, I think I think I omitted the best part. I started reading right after the best part. We must face up to lust in full consciousness. Yeah. We must make of lust what sophisticated and intelligent people make of themselves in their own lives. We must make lust into a work of art. To pretend that one didn't know what one was doing, to feign swooning in order to carry out an act of love, this is hypocrisy, weakness, and nonsense. Well, see, I think that idea of the full consciousness and that we should desire a body consciously like any other Mm -hmm. thing, I think that's the semi-Freudian idea again. Mm. You know, this idea that somehow by uh, moving it... Because before that, she's alluding to, no, no, we already do have this desire. It is apparent in the soldier, in the uh, uh, these initiates into religion, uh, in uh, who still have this burning fire for the unknown, her implication being that eventually it's extinguished. (laughs) And she also says it for the artist... Here, uh, so she is alluding to the fact that it is there, but it's unconscious or subconscious or something. Mm -hmm. By moving into the consciousness, the Freudian idea is that it's then somehow fixed or put into the right balance or somehow the neuroses or whatever is resolved, you know, through the talk therapy. And so there's something very important about having it in front of one's consciousness Mm -hmm. as opposed to being there anyway, Mm -hmm. but sort of below but then the idea of the lust as a work of art, uh, 
and this is the futurist idea that they get from the romantics and I think even if, I mean I think I don't know where you want to draw the line but I think this is the idea of philosophy like the ancient Greek philosophers are the ones who are always saying that philosophy is not just an activity that you do in a certain field it is somewhere it is a way of life and here the romantics were saying that no no you have to live ideas in a certain way the futurists were then saying their ideas have to bleed into every aspect of their mm-hmm. life and now lust is itself a work of art um, but you then you had the two qualifications that it must not be mindless yes this is the and I don't think this is to dumb down or to somehow reduce or taper or numb the intensity of the desire mm. desire is still blazing it is intense but rather it's considered to direct it exactly exactly um, so this is the idea I think of the carnal well it's it's I mean she says it all spiritual yes but she says it all in we must make lust into a work of art yeah it's all in there because but it's developed though from that because otherwise you could just think that uh, you what's to stop you from then thinking that um like jumping on the first person that you really like and that they jump on you that that's your work of art that's it not might art. not be that's it's not, not art no she's what she says but that's what a whole is here well but that's a whole what she says what art is yeah she does Go for it. about the creation about of art, art that uh, it has to be this uh, uh, conscious uh, that is this union of conscious and instinctive creation no exactly that's that's the point art it's is something and unconscious but art art is also yeah. something practiced mm. it's a trade essentially it's not something you just do like that right that's why ready made is bullshit because it's not but she's no she's happy with whim i think but not with thoughtless whim desire can be whim but it has to be held in this very strong uh, a bond with you can have this desire erupt within you and it can be as intense and as i said blazing earlier on and it can just come up spontaneously like that but as long as you're mentally cerebrally okay with it and very judicious and directing it it's still good and that that can be i think whim it's not just any old idea carried out for her it's an idea that can come up very in but a can, wait, 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 no but if it's a whim it's not considered whim, i think whims aren't whims aren't considered i think that you can hear equivocate between whim and spontaneity I, I seem to think whim is more uh, flippant than spontaneity. Uh, yeah, I know, but I out, think this is where she someone, becomes complicated. But if you, go out with some, but if you go out with someone spontaneously, it's not the same as if, you know, you are fling with, as if, you know, you're with someone on a whim. But see, before the futurists talk about these ideas of whims... But I think this is where she actually introduces additional conceptual tools. Also, who knows what whim means in Italian? how that was translated friend you're the one who does the translation oh, I'm, I'm the Italian apparently uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway but mm-hmm. I think that that's where actually we'll see how it develops but mm-hmm. um, I think that this is where she actually um, introduces new tools mm. and gives us a better framework through which to understand women a slightly more sophisticated one that it is this whim is nothing more than spontaneity and actually that even then it's not all okay it has to be uh, held in this particular union 
but yeah, no. So we do have desire being judicious, mm-hmm. but then we also have this next point that she uh, offers about the. F- it has to reach the fullest potential for these lovers, and I think this ties into the idea that the cycle of life and all of these points. It's not egotistical. And we know what annihilation is. It's when there's sentimentality. It's when there's the rhetoric of sure. love. It's all this stuff. That's the thing. It's complacency. That's the death. That's the negative. We don't want to go towards that. But the fullest potential, she seems... Uh, it's unclear. In my translation, um, mm-hmm. it's rendered as um, the Higit. Equally consciously and with the same guiding will... The joys of this coupling should lead to the climax, should develop its full potential, and should permit to flower all the seeds sown by the merging of two bodies. And then again, we get the lust should be made into a work of art, form like it. Now, it's not quite immediately obvious. Mm. There seems to be a lot of euphemism. I would take it as lust is more than just penetration and orgasm. Yeah. Uh, that it is the entire erotic act and everything that's surrounding it. And though she doesn't say these words, I would suspect that today you might say things like the tantric, foreplay, ideas surrounding it, various ritualistic aspects that are deemed erotic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Schoolboy! Yeah. No, Schoolboy! Yeah. Look at that Continue. little grin on your Continue. face. Uh-huh. That little grin on your face. Yeah, no, Hilarious. Thomas, Thomas, tell us, tell us about the... <laughs> tell, tell us about the tantric. Tantric? <laughs> no, no, good. <laughs> Are going to mention Sting or are we going to talk about the Hindu? <laughs> um, but no, I think that this is important because it's, uh, this is, again, where you get this idea that it's not just the immediate satisfaction of a basic desire where mm-hmm. it's just this uh, basic act and orgasm. It's the entire thing surrounding it and that there is a particular telos of it. There is an end and it must be developed to its full potential. Mm-hmm. And that's the entire erotic thing. Yeah. And that's the work of art around mm. it. So it's, it's far more general. So this lust comes with qualifications. It's not just, oh, I'm going to leap on top of someone. And also it's not the end of it is just orgasm. It is far more considered. She does give these two qualifications that no, there is this judicious, this considered will as part of it, and that she alludes to with the mind and body, or the spirit yeah. and physical and the spiritual and carnal. And actually, I've been meaning to find a moment to read the last, the last few lines of this manifesto, and Please I think do. I think this is the moment. Lust is for the body what an ideal purpose is for the mind. The magnificent chimera always grasped at, never seized. The goal that is incessantly sought after by the young and eager, intoxicated with vision. Lust is a force. Mm. I'm glad yeah. you stressed that, that the idea of, again of the lust is a force. And that is the final line that is the final of line. the manifesto. That, that sums it up. Really, if you wanted to know what this manifesto is about, it lust is, is a force. Lust is a force, yeah. yeah. So I think that that psychological thing even though there are all these additional reflections, is very important. That There is no... I think this also captures the idea that there is this balance of the cycle and also the idea of the end that she alludes to, this pursuit of the unknown. And it's the idea of this... That we're this force. I, I, and this, I think, exemplifies the idea that it's not egotistical. Really, there is. She does paint this picture where there are basic, there are basic natural forces, and this is how they all lead. I would just, uh, before we conclude, uh, uh, want to stress a couple of things. 
I mentioned that uh, she, in a throwaway line, talks about natural selection. And lust is a yeah. force in that it kills the weak and exalts the strong, aiding natural selection. It's not developed any further. No. She just touches upon it. The Nietzschean idea, I think, reaches its, uh, 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 its uh, peak in lust triumphs because it is the joyous exaltation that drives one beyond oneself, the delight in possession and domination, the perpetual victory from which the perpetual battle is born anew, the headiest and sheerest intoxication of conquest. And as this certain conquest is temporary, it must be constantly won anew. This has this idea of constant renewal constant and moving return, beyond yeah. oneself. Um, uh, with that line of beyond oneself, and this is a line that Batai and Mishima will specifically pick up on, the Surrealists mm-hmm. not so much, uh, but they're more interested in this, uh, the um, subconscious and unconscious forces. But uh, So this really blows me away, um, and this idea of the delight in possession and domination, these two opposing forces just in... in mm-hmm. Not in union here, but... Or in union, in but union. in synthesis as well. In, yeah, in synthesis, it, it, yeah. it's that. It's not that equilibrium point. It's here that they are one, and that the perpetual victory and the perpetual battle is born anew. That there is this recurrence, that cycle, and it's very, it's very strong. And I mean, we st- began with uh, part of our initial recitation mm-hmm. was. Um, uh, that lust is the eternal battle, never finally won. After the fleeting triumph, even during the ephemeral triumph itself, reawakening dissatisfaction spurs a human being driven by an orgiastic will to expend and surpass himself. What I find fascinating here is that even in the ephemeral triumph itself, so if we take it in its most primitive form and most literal form, the point of orgasm itself would itself then constitute the renewal of the desire for a future orgasm. Right. And I think that this is this is where it becomes so sophisticated and so interesting. She doesn't develop it in uh, anymore. We don't have any more manifestos to go through oh. with her. But I, I, I it's fell in love with this It's tragic, isn't it? It's so good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry, uh, yeah, this was the line of um, lust should be made into a work of art formed like every work of art, both instinctively and consciously. That was where she defines what a work of art is. Mm. It's great because there are so many throwaway lines. She alludes to so many different ideas. We think some of them are Freudian. She's touching upon these uh, 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 um, ideas of the mystics and Asada, at least as we read them. It's great. I'm going so, away. And I love the way it was. So written. look, now I that we've... powerful. Me too, it was fantastic. And so now, now that we have uh, seen this, what do we make of her? What do we make of Saint-Point? Well, we know where she's going. She will abandon this in the mm-hmm. next year, possibly even less than a year. I think she gets frightened by her own image. Yeah. I think that this... I she could might, be entirely I mean, wrong. But also, but also, maybe... maybe I don't know if she would get don't frightened. You? I don't know if she'd get frightened by well, her. Well, she own. goes at 180. Someone who is so self-assured in their writing style. No. no, of course, but the war happens. Yeah, I know, but here she's exalting it. And in yes, the last but, one, she has that example of so the easy. woman pointing at her, uh, yeah, her groin and I mean, saying, I have the ability to create more. I have the mold to create more yeah, when her son is threatened. Yeah, I know, but the war happens. <laughs> Well, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure if it's that she gets scared by it. There's something else. Marinetti offers her a position in the official futurist bureaucracy, mm. and she found that terribly gauche, I think, and, mm. and left. And, and that is a lame proposition, isn't it? 
Maybe I in a futurist bureaucracy. That sounds very lame. Doesn't seem very energetic to me. Perhaps. It seems like Marinetti wanted to stamp things. I mean, there's something else as well that we haven't touched upon, and I don't think that we shall here. But mm-hmm. I will just mention that this is something that we should have sure. mentioned. Um, in the last manifesto, she has this great forward distinction between uh, the masculine and the feminine, and she uses mm-hmm. that to, uh, at the level of the individual as well as historical points. She uses it as a psychological uh, uh, descriptor uh, as well as historical anthropological perhaps even normative. Mm. Here, she doesn't mention the masculine and the feminine so much. She does allude to it. She has this idea of the sacred woman with the, when the, in terms of the unknown. There could be some connection there that we haven't really picked upon. <clears throat> no, but something of that we haven't picked up on, uh, the distinction uh, of the physical uh, uh, or the bodily and the spiritual and the mental. Right. How does that relate to the difference between masculinity and femininity. Are they equivalent? Mm, interesting. So is, is she making a... And a, if not... Is she making an association between femininity and the mental, do you think? Yeah, and the, the physical or the... Because she also does the spiritual and the carnal. Yeah, no, that might, that might be... And that's the second one. Um, oh, so spiritual and the carnal. Interesting that you say that because I... I <laughs> there was... Um, uh, <laughs> There is something. There is something similar. I think again to do with to do with the translation that I noted. An, intel- an exclusively intellectual people or an exclusively carnal people are condemned to the same decadence, sterility. Right. So we have we have the same intellectual spiritual thing, which which is muddying things up more than I'd like. And that also mirrors what she said in the last manifesto. Exactly. Where too much femininity breeds this kind of thing and too much masculinity breeds this kind well, of thing. Well I mean I think you I think you may have identified something of import here, Thomas. Hopefully I mean, the someone entire that knew, podcast. <laughs> someone that knew better might even say that's uh, verging on scholarship, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, when it comes to scholarship, our translations are the yes. best bit of scholarship. <laughs> yeah. If you could do some stuff with translations, ooh, you will shoot up. Yes. Um, but no, uh, I don't think we'll develop that anymore today. No. We're all ready slightly over. But yes. it's worth mentioning. Perhaps we'll pick up on it, maybe in a bonus episode, if we get some more ideas I about it. I think that would it. be a good idea. And um, perhaps... Uh, I think there's... there's Some Kofi stuff or yeah, Patreon and, stuff. And also, you know... If, you see if, what I did there? Oh, nice little... We have a Kofi page. We have a Kofi page. And Um, we'll probably get a Patreon at some point, but certainly we have a Kofi. We certainly have a Kofi. And we have Instagram and Twitter. Yes, yes, we do. Uh, For Twitter, Twitter, you can find us at Manifesto Image. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. at Manifesto... No, not even... At Manifesto Image. At Manifesto Image. Yeah, it has to be short. I love it. And then the other one, the Instagram, is just the Manifest Image Podcast. But if you'd like us to do more on Valentine de Saint-Point, please, please let us know. We might drop a uh, special little episode on her. Uh, we look at some more of her things because she's sort of a fascinating figure yeah, that I think deserves much more attention that, than she gets. Mm. Um, yeah. And um, uh, we also have an email the manifest image podcast at gmail.com so you can mm-hmm. contact us there if not by Instagram and of course as you always know Thomas's address uh, is in <laughs> is FT Marinetti one in Green February <laughs> oh see I was starting to say in Greenland, Greenland. <laughs> yeah 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 um 
but we really like this one. No, we really this do. One, and uh, as, it reads really, it, it's, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. It's and as usual, try to pick up on the clues that I've left throughout the episode for Thomas's real address. Ariel actually comes from a long line of addresses. So you see, <laughs> doing all the jokes here. This is Excellent. true. All right. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Manifest Image. Thank you very much. <laughs>